When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on how to be wrong. I'm John Traphagen, host for today's episode. Today uh, with me is Adrian Lenarditch, who is a professor in the Department of Earth, Environmental, and Planetary Sciences at Rice University. Adrian has a very interesting background, having started as a visual arts major at the University of Wisconsin-Madison before switching to geophysics. He went on to get his PhD in planetary science from UCLA and did his postdoctoral work at UC Berkeley. Adrian, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here, John. Thank you. So I want to start out right away. You have an interesting and varied intellectual path. I'm, I'm guessing there probably have been a few mistakes along the way, as most of us have had. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um how you got from visual arts to geophysics with a bit of surfing thrown in. Sure. Um, interesting question. Uh, I'm part of a first generation family. So my family came to the United States from Croatia at the time it was the former Yugoslavia. So I was about five years old and we moved to Milwaukee. My family worked hard to, you know, give me a chance to go to college if I wanted to go to college. And the thought was not for some specific career. They were good with anything. It was more to give me some freedom as to what I might want to do and specifically to wind up doing something I enjoyed. So that that was kind of the goal. So I got to explore a lot of things. Um, I was kind of drawn to some of the creative side of things. So there's kind of good things about giving an 18-year-old a lot of freedom and sometimes bad things. You wind up doing things maybe, as you say, that can be a mistake. So I started as an arts major, but um, in high school, we had guidance counselors. I think they still have that. And one of the guidance counselors was nice enough to pull me aside and they said, Adrian, this looks great, but, you know, have you noticed you're kind of good at this physics and math stuff, so you might want to hedge your bets. And I did hedge my bets and I went through two years and then I realized somewhere in that second year that science is actually creative. And in some sense, I felt cheated. It had taken that long for somebody to explain that to me, that it's not just reproducing what some dead people had done, that it actually it does allow for it. And once, once I saw that, it kind of opened up and I actually moved more toward the science side of things. Um, to be honest with you, I started to realize I'd probably starve as a free artist and I got, you know, kind of pushed into commercial art. Nothing against it, but it just wasn't fitting what I wanted to do. So once I went to that path, um, I had to talk to some other guidance counselors. And again, part of this is, you know, kind of a first-gen family. My, my family didn't know what the path toward academics was. And the idea of graduate school was completely left field. I had no idea. My grandfather called it college after college, which confused the hell out of him. So I talked to them. I applied to some places, was accepted at UCLA. At the time, I was kind of a skateboard fanatic, maybe still a little bit, wanted to learn how to surf. That's 
you know, was that a mistake or not? Maybe that was a good mistake that I actually based my decision just on wanting to be near the ocean so I could learn how to surf and had fun surfing. Um, got to appreciate that surfers know a lot of science themselves. So that's kind of how that that played out. Wound up finishing up and then decided that, you know, maybe academics was kind of a cool thing. A lot of my friends weren't scientists, but I started to realize that I gained pleasure, um, I guess, helping them understand a bit of physics. So maybe being a teacher was something for me. And ultimately, that's got me to where I am. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for these kind of indirect roads that, that you know, are sometimes people want to be right on the straight path, but kind of bouncing around a little bit has a lot to be said for it because you, you run into people you wouldn't run into otherwise. And they turn out to be pretty interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's something, I mean, my, my path has been, you know, very similar in that sense where I've done lots of different kinds of things and I've always been engaged in music. And, um, but, you know, it's kind of, um, it's one thing you said that was quite interesting is, your parents didn't really understand what this academic path was. And I see this with a lot of students that are first generation students where, you know, they, they struggle with both taking the path, but also explaining to their families what they're doing and why they're doing it. And it, it seems like a, a, a really weird path when the path ought to be, well, why don't you just go get a job and make money and, um, and graduate yeah, school no. even more so. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I hear you. And actually, the, you know, the title of your podcast is so cool to me for that reason that, you know, it's, it's easy to say one learns from mistakes, but sometimes that gets downplayed, right? So going the wrong way, finding your right way is a nice thing. And I, you know, I feel fortunate that, you know, my family in the States was more than willing to allow me that freedom, right? They just kind of wanted me to be happy, right? Whatever job I wound up in. Yeah, I was I was fortunate with that as well. Uh, my my parents, my father is a retired music professor, and my mother was a musician and a businesswoman, and and very much they were well take the path that makes sense. But what that led to was an awful lot of bouncing around for in my twenties. It led to me you know living at home with them for a while when I would have been better off probably out doing something. But um, it it also kind of not having goals, I thought was actually, when I look back, I think was a good thing because it gave me the opportunity to, you know, make some quote unquote mistakes. And, and I got a lot out of that. Right on. No, that's, yeah. that's ideal. Well, let me ask. So you've been, you've been doing some interesting um, writing and thinking about the intersection of the, of scientific research and the administrative aims of the university. I think any of us who are, you know, sort of rank and file faculty, we're, we're confronted with and think about this on a regular basis. And you, you note some interesting things. You note the expectations that are placed on scientists. Um, and, and I would add, this is the same in the humanities and the social sciences. Um, we have these expectations to get our work noticed. I mean, I'm always getting, you know, things from the PR people saying, oh, I see you're doing a cool conference. We want to write an article on that. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this works and, and why university administrators are pushing hard to get scholars to get noticed and to market our work. And you sent me a really cool little excerpt from an article, and I just wanted to kind of read a quick quote from that. And the article is noting that, you know, the scientific method is a really interesting thing because it makes a virtue out of doubt and, and it forces us to accept, as the author says, the fact that our truths are ephemeral. 
that is, to me, the single most important thing about the scientific method. But he goes on to say that, you know, if you want a scientific career, you absolutely have to prove that you're right. Two options are open to you, quality of career or quality of life. I said, wow, you know, that's a really powerful statement. I think it's right on the mark. So could you talk a bit about this stuff? Sure. So I, um, as you, consider myself kind of an in-the-trenches, you know, working academic. Um, People who want to go into administration, more power to them, but I'm not that. And I noticed that some of my colleagues who were also working sort of, you know, in the trenches as academics were starting to notice things. And some of the things were related to pressures that were being put on academics for what I would say is marketing, getting ideas more noticed. Now, that's always been around at some level. And I knew it when I came in, but it just seemed to be increasing. Now, why that is, you know, we can come back to that, but I think many people have noted it. And one of the aspects that comes from this was that when I talked to my colleagues and I said, hey, are you getting these kind of emails from your administration, right? It's time to brag about your work or it's time to promote things. And they said, yeah, we are getting a lot more. And just being a curious person, this isn't what I do. Um, I'm more a physical scientist, but I started researching it, looking a little bit into this. And my colleagues and I came to some realization that maybe what was happening was no different than what was happening in a lot of other fields. So at the dawn of the Internet, several, several influential people had started thinking about this, were very prescient, and they said there might be a change coming in the economy. And science is part of the economy. There's nothing wrong with that, where they coined the term the attention economy and that attention was going to actually be the commodity more so than money. Now, attention leads to money, of course. So to me, it seemed that the universities, uh, many universities were starting to fall into that. What they wanted was more attention for their scholars, for their postdocs. And when we started thinking about that, it's like, well, What's the end goal here? Now, ultimately, universities have always wanted, I guess, what you'll call prestige, right, or respect. And I'm going to sound totally old school when I say respect is earned. And I think that's still true. And I think all the scientists, all the humanists, all the artists working at universities feel that way. But there was this kind of twist where there came this, yeah, it's earned, but we can influence it a little bit. We can push it a little harder. We can get you to promote, to advertise. So once I hit this, it's like, well, wait a minute. I actually almost went into advertising. This was the arts I was being pushed toward. And even in the advertising field, I have nothing bad to say about it. There are phrases that are called advertising, where actually you're kind of crossing some lines and what you're doing is not actually going to be beneficial to you. So this is what got us to start thinking that all this hype, and I'll speak from the science side, right, where now you have to actually promote your ideas well before the method has played out, the scientific method has played out, before somebody has reproduced your ideas, before somebody has debated you before somebody has maybe refuted your ideas, that was actually getting sort of pushed off in the attention game where it's now, no, you got to get the result out quick. And I can't blame everything on social media, nor do I mean to, but it actually added a layer, a secondary layer to the primary times when scientists get their work out. And scientists will always argue, right? We'll be wrong. We should be. 
the fact that that was being devalued seemed to be working against what the scientific goal was and in my opinion what the academic goal is and what the goal of a university is so that's what got us starting to think about this once i started talking to my junior colleagues i felt really maybe now there's a need to call this out because the pressures they're under and you can you know tell me if you see this in the humanities too are far greater than the pressures i was under to succeed yeah, I, I think it's, it's you know, a place where I see it is the push for graduate students to publish. And, and in the natural sciences, that makes a lot of sense. In the social sciences and humanities, it doesn't necessarily make sense. You know, for example, I'm an anthropologist. Um, there is no point to publishing if you've never gone and done field work because you don't have anything to say <laughs> and because you're not data. And yet there's this push and it runs all through graduate school now that, oh, you've got to publish because you don't get a job if you, if you aren't publishing. And, um, you know, I wonder if part of this, you know, there's the, there's the social media component, but I think there's another side to this as well, that um, it's what I call kind of the businessification of the academy and everything is being run on a business model now. And of course, when that model runs the way a university operates, then we start being very focused on, you know, in a sense, profits. And what profits mean in this case is, is you know, things that be counted like numbers of publications, numbers of citations that feed that prestige machine. And instead of being focused on what are the quality of the things that we're doing, it's become very quantitative in the way that things are being approached. And, and I think that's a, personally, I think it's a, a kind of a disaster for higher education, uh, no, I, I fully agree. And the quote unquote business model of the university, I think, is something that we're seeing across various universities. I haven't done the research to pinpoint when that kind of came into play, but it seems, you know, to me around 10 years or so ago. And yeah, once you go to a business model, there is advertising, there is the prestige. And if now the commodity is attention, then that's actually going to be pushed toward the people who do the work you need to get your attention, you need to actually help us get you attention. So that becomes an added pressure. And it's been at some level, and I don't know how this has happened, just accepted as a new job requirement, when in fact, it works kind of against what actually science wants to do. The quantification is interesting as well. So I'm a quantitative scientist. And I think this quantification is absolutely stupid. It's ridiculous. Right. So now you have very quantitative administrators who think actually, OK, this is an easy way to evaluate how a faculty member is doing. Let me just check these metrics, rotation counts, age counts, things like that. And just as the people who saw, you know, the rise of the attention economy coming, many people have noted, right, once once the metric becomes the goal, it's going to be gamed. And you can now buy off things, you can buy off likes. There's a vast literature, and I was kind of happy to see there is a literature on this. Again, unhappy that it's being ignored um, about, yeah, these various ways these numbers are being gamed, the system's being gamed. And it really, at the end of the day, I, I agree with you, it does come down to this business model where there is kind of prestige equated to um, gain in some level. Now the gain can be students coming in. The gain can be added grants coming in. If you're somebody writing the grants, 
the gains can be alumni, perhaps, that it's thought that the alumni enjoys this. But the two together, to me, have never really worked out because you don't get actually an effectively run business and you don't get a center of higher education. You have this kind of Frankenstein thing cobbled together that doesn't really work. Well, I think part of the reason for that is because the one game that gets overlooked is the whole game that, that higher education is about, increase in knowledge. But that one's actually pretty hard to quantify, and that one's nebulous. It also doesn't really generate a sense of prestige. And, you know, so you can look at how many 4.0 GPA students we got and, and say, see, we're a top-ranked university. But it's very hard to say, well, we, our faculty contributed a lot to knowledge this past year. That makes us a great university. It, it, they can't, you can't do that in a business model. And, you know, from my perspective, a big part of the problem is the failure to recognize that a university is not a business at all. That's just not what it is. And, and um, it does things that contribute to business. So, you know, we generate new ideas and, you know, engineering generates things, you know, it's, it's all over the place, but we're not a business. And, and I think that's, I think it's been very damaging um, to basically the thing that we really are trying to do is to create knowledge because there's this other stuff going on that's always affecting it. No, I agree. And my my biggest worry has been it's damaging to the incoming knowledge creators who feel I might not want to be a part of this. This isn't what I thought when I was looking into this, the pleasure I get from it is so different. And I think it works against many of the things we want, which is kind of just a diverse pool of people coming in. It definitely doesn't favor that by, by any means, um, as near as I can see, particularly once it comes to quantitative check marks. And we're told when students apply, right, that you don't want to put too much value there. You want to be a little bit more holistic. And I know that's kind of a loaded word. It's a squishy word, too. But I think we all know what that means, right, that we can evaluate that way. It takes more time. It doesn't allow for the bean counting type ways of evaluating things. But I think students coming in will see that if what they aspire to, the people they aspire to be in their position are being evaluated that way, and they're being evaluated that way, I don't think it's going to be healthy for future generations. Yeah, I think you, you see it with, you mentioned junior faculty, and you know they're coming in in a, a model that is you know push, push, push to publish more and more and more, and they're being trained that it's how much you publish, not the quality of what you publish. That's the thing that you're going to be measured on. And then, of course, that feeds this whole other problem with the publishing industry and all of these pointless journals and these predatory journals and things that are out there. And, you know, I probably, you probably get this too. I get, I would say I average at least 10 requests a day to submit an article to a predatory journal. They're usually things that have absolutely nothing to do with my research, you know, and, and they start out with, you know, dear professor, we read your article on, and then they go on, you know, it's like an article about, I don't know, religion in Japan, and they want me to submit an article on nuclear physics or something. I mean, it's literally that, that bizarre. Um, and, you know, but that's, that's part of this whole thing. It's just, you know, crank out lots and lots of papers. The content doesn't really matter. And, 
unfortunately, that problem then traps junior faculty because they go, wow, I must produce papers. I've got to produce a lot of papers. And they go and drop $5,000 to get published in some predatory journal because they've got to get papers out. Yeah, no, I agree. The The numbers have been pushed and the pressures on faculty have been increased as a result. There's something else that I've started to notice, and I don't know if you've gotten these kind of emails, and it's like the one I got, I was just sort of laughing, but they're for more established journals, right? I'm not going to name names, but they're starting to send out emails, and I got one after we published a paper. Hey, Dr. Lenardic, here's a way to get your paper the notoriety it deserves, and they give you a link to actually get more hype, more press releases. And I think a lot of the prestigious journals as well are kind of looking to have articles that allow for very simple, almost clickbait type things for the media to pick up. And I have nothing against the media, but again, right, once metrics and once these things come in, they'll be good and they'll be the bad. There's good journals, there's predatory, similar for the media exposure. The pressures I also now see on my junior faculty, and some of them, I have to say, and this we have to be honest, they're, they're kind of afraid to admit this because they're kind of worried, right, that it will not help them get tenure. So not only are there pressures to get more articles out, there are pressures to get what are now called high-profile work out, whatever that means, right? So ultimately, I think for most working people, they go, well, that means it's something that goes beyond the primary platform I publish on. So right out of it, it can't just be in the anthropology journal. It's got to be picked up somewhere else. It has to be media worthy. And I see that word used and it started to disturb me. And then I actually started to see junior faculty Vita, the equivalent of a resume, where you used to have your papers. Now there are sections, media exposure, right? So that you have to get. But I think we all know, right, that if you're actually going to talk about research, things we're trying to discover, that doesn't actually sell that well. What sells a little better in that little blurb I send you is things that seem authoritative and correct. And for me, that undermines the process. The added pressure is then extreme that I have junior faculty colleagues who are being pressured to go to our media department. But they're not that type of personality, right? That's, that's not how they've been brought up. In certain cultures, right, bragging is not what you do. So they feel this pressure, and then when people try to square that circle for a job gain, it just leads to mistakes of the bad kind. Yeah. Well, and that brings us to a really interesting phrase that you use, the humble brag. Can, can you talk a bit about how academics are being pushed to operate with this humble brag? You know, what, what, do you, what does this mean, and how do you think it influences science? Yeah, this is one of the rediscoveries we made when I was looking at this and I started seeing how some results were being hyped and promoted. I thought, oh, this is kind of a weird mix of somebody trying to be either kind of funny or self-depreciating while at the same time being self-promoting. And I started to wonder, is there a word for that? And eventually I found it. Humble brag's been used quite a bit. It's usually used more for um, celebrities. Um musicians, people kind of wanting to promote themselves, social media influencers. And to me, the humble brag is 
there are various definitions. I'll just sort of come up with my own. It, it's kind of a wrapper is put around a blatant self-promotion. And that wrapper is a false bit of humility or self-depreciation with the intent that, oh, this will make it lighter. And when I started to wonder, why are people doing that? There must be some motivation. So somehow deep down in one's mind, one must know if I actually just put this out as it is, it would just be offensive self-promotion. So how do I actually make that pill go down a little better? Well, let me add a little humility to it. And we're not the only ones who have noticed it. We just noticed it in science, right? Where people are kind of missing it, that scientists are doing the same thing. It leads to just some silliness, just some ridiculous sounding statements. What was also interesting that it was missed in science, there is kind of this conception. I try to dispel this when I teach students. Um, scientists are human beings with the same capacity to do very stupid things that any other human being has. So we don't sit high and mighty above these sort of things. So we just started to notice this in so many places. Now, rather than just sort of, you know, poo-pooing the scientists, we started to wonder why is this? Part of it, I think, is actually the pressures being put on you know, working scientists from the administration, which says you need to do this. This is part of your career. This is how you get ahead. And then if you don't feel completely comfortable with this, that you don't want to look like a self-promoting, you know, fill in the blank, you feel the need to somehow tone it down. And that leads to this humble rapper and you get this humble brag, which is even more comical. And then you get humble brag after humble brag after humble brag. What's difficult about this for me is it actually increases the pressure other people feel. You're competing now. It's become open competition. And the business model leads to this. Businesses want to succeed. How do you succeed? You sell more than the other business. So now if scientists are being put into this, how do we succeed at this university? Well, we have to do better than the other university, which means more papers, more things correct, it's competition. And I have nothing against competition. I love sports. I've done it. But turning science into a competitive sport is not going to lead to science maintaining itself. And when we look at a deterioration of trust amongst the public, this is part and parcel of it, in my opinion. If scientists are just sort of yelling for attention the way everybody else is, well, at some point, right, attention's a limited thing. <laughs> Yes, it is. Yeah, I think as you were describing that, I, I thought about how um, how subtle the humble brag can be. And I was thinking about how you know, we recently had our, our annual merit conversation in our department where everybody puts up what they've done for the year. And of course, there's there's, you know, how many publications that you have, but there's this interesting kind of humble brag that gets put up. How many pages was each article that got published? And it's really intriguing to me because it takes the, the conversation in totally the wrong direction. It's, I did this really big thing with a lot of work. See, I deserve that to be noted. Rather than, what was the quality of the thing that I did? Because you can have an article that's really short, but really profound and changes a field. And there are plenty of really long articles out there that are partially worthless. And yet somehow it's that number 
you know, see, look how hard I worked. It's, it's, I think it's the same kind of thing as a humble brag. And one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, you mentioned the, the problem with junior faculty and coming up for tenure, the level of pressure that people don't realize is that when you don't get tenure, you lose your job. That's what I think a lot of people don't understand about the academic world. And so with junior faculty, they're just funneled into this kind of oven that says you must do these things and reach these you know, goals and that sort of thing. Because if you don't do that, and sometimes it's pretty vaguely laid out, but if you don't do whatever that is, then not only do you not get tenure, but it's goodbye. You have to go get another job. And that's, you know, for in particular, if you've got a family or anything, that's really frightening. So No, I agree. And there's feedbacks then that come to work. So with more pressures put on, more things you have to do, where now it's not just a matter of creating knowledge, it's getting the knowledge noticed and the obligation becomes yours, right? So it's another job requirement, another thing you have to do. You have to go to more places, you have to make media contact. So you're overwhelmed, more things to do, which also means that there's less time to actually even think about what you're doing, right? You're just doing what you need to get a job. And I think most scientists would actually feel this isn't the right way to do it, but there isn't even the time to think about it much less the pressures put on you for your career just to actually survive. And then it actually does feel like you're in competition with other people. Now, when I came in, I felt that, right? There are some people doing my work, but it never felt like open competition. Like, right, if you do better, I'm going to do worse, which is just an awful feeling for community endeavors. And in the social sciences and the sciences and the arts, Ultimately, we all work together, right? We try to push our knowledge forward, right? If one person could do it, why are there so many of us? Because one can't. But it undermines that. And that's kind of a nasty feedback then. So it's not just that you're promoting yourself. You're promoting yourself over other people with the thought that you actually gain and win. And that is part of the business model. That is part of the open competition. And then the things you see in these humble brags, they don't have to be on websites. They can be very many places, but the classic one, right, is, oh, hey, I just got my grant funded. Great. And if people thought about it, they go, well, wait a minute. That means about 80% of my cohorts did not. And they're looking at this now, me bragging to them that, oh, hey, I did better than you. And they're all over the place. And it just, you know, so I could come here and go, hey, John, I'm so happy my article is generating interest. But I got to tell you, all these podcasts are wearing me out. I need a vacation. <laughs> yeah, That's the kind of stuff you start to see. And it's it's become this requirement for success. And what got us thinking about it is, why did that happen? None of the scientists I know ever said, yeah, that sounds great. Never. Part of that also, I think, is the fact the community itself is being fractured by this, because that would require the community coming together, thinking about our mutual concerns, right? And we do have power that way. But once it's just individual success, there's no time for that. And that's, that's a nasty feedback. Yeah, and it, it can be very systemic. I, I don't know what, you know, things are like at Rice, but it, at my university, the only raises we ever get are merit raises. What that means 
is we are all playing a zero-sum game because what happens is every department gets a pool of money and then there's a decision made about who gets more and who gets less based upon their productivity. And it's very much that kind of business model, but that does not generate a context that supports mutual, mutual exploration of ideas, trying to support each other in our research and that kind of thing. It's basically saying you're all competing with each other and whoever gets the most, whatever that turnout turns out to be, you get more cash in your pocket. And, you know, again, even if you're not terribly motivated, I mean, a lot of us in the academic world aren't all that motivated by money, but you can't avoid it either because you have to live and, you know, if you have a family and that kind of thing, you got to think about it. And so um, it it's like a, a systemic component that sort of generates this sense that we need to be competing with each other all the time. No, I agree. And I think the problem is systemic and this is an easy thing to say, um, but sometimes it gets overlooked Right. So if you don't realize it's a systemic problem and you're part of the system, it could become all too easy to place the blame somewhere else to actually blame the other. Oh, it's these other scientists hyping things. It's not me. And once we started thinking about it, we started looking at ourselves and it's like, no, actually, we're, we're part and parcel of the problem. Or the other one that I often see, it's like you blame the environment. Right. Oh, don't blame the player. Blame the game. But the game is actually a systemic thing, right, that we've all been involved in creating. So it's similar at my university. It is this sort of what various people have now started to call hyper competition, certainly within the scientists. I don't know if you've seen that phrase within the humanities, but it is more and more competitive hyper competition between your colleagues. And it's not just university to university. So at various universities, and I've talked to other people that it's not just my own. Departments are fighting with each other for resources where they actually want to be noticed more and more, which is why at various departments, departments now have their own PR, right, to promote their own work with the thought that there are limited resources at the university. So we need to justify that, let's say, the sciences are better than the arts. We're getting more attention. We're getting more draw. This will eventually trickle down to more prestige more money, more grants. So then you're competing with people at your own university. And this can lead to, since we're talking about the humble brag, a complete deterioration of humility in the sense of respecting every realm of knowledge creation that exists across a university. When I entered the university, I thought that was the beauty of it. Yes, engineering might generate more money, but right from my university at UCLA, the last degrees awarded were philosophy because that was still seen as important. Yep. My university several years ago codified this. Uh, they created a system where they basically counted butts in seats for each college and they gave you a benchmark of how many butts you needed to have in seats. If you made the benchmark, you got your um, budget. If you didn't make it, you lost your budget. And that money went to those that exceeded their benchmark. That's a horrible way to create an academic environment where people are working together to try to pursue knowledge and, and increase our understanding of the world. It's basically saying, you know, the only thing that matters is how many students you can pull in and, and we'll give you money if you can do that. I, I don't know if that system's still operating, but um, when it came out, I just 
shook my head thinking, what could you people possibly be thinking about that this looks like a good way to run a university? It just doesn't make sense. No, and I think that's part and parcel of, you know, the quantification of everything, right? That you attach a number to it. So 19 students versus 17 students. And if that somehow has meaning (laughs) and these overly precise numbers, it's an easy thing to do. The confusion for me, and I think a lot of my colleagues, is who decided on this, right? And I don't think it was ever the faculty necessarily. Well, that you know, that gets to kind of the, the problem with this. You're, you're pointing out we're all, in a sense, complicit in it because we're part of it, and we, we, we kind of have no choice but to engage in it. How do we change it? Well, that's a good question. So that is actually what got my colleagues and I to at least write an article about it, where the first thing is at least a little exposure. Let's call it out. Let's see what it is. Let's name it. Um, I'll be honest with you. The fact I am tenured allowed me to do that a little bit easier than if my other colleagues who aren't, who do feel the same way, would have a harder time of that. But I think that's actually one of the reasons tenure was in place, that it allows you to say things that might not be comfortable to, you know, who's ultimately paying your salary. That's that's the goal. And that's knowledge. Knowledge can be uncomfortable. That was the first thing we started to do. And then we started to find that there are other people thinking about it. So exposure and then I I 100 percent agree with you. This is a completely systemic problem. The idea that you're going to solve it from above by putting in more regulations or things like that, I think will work against what we want to do. So problems that are systemic then require a little bit of a view from the inside. Discussions like this, and I'm, you know, I'm not being patronized or anything like that. I think they're of value because it forces at least a few people to talk it through, right? And systems can be complicated. So you want to try to understand it as best you can. That's a good start. From there, then it has to be a little bit, um, this is going to sound very non-quantitative and very squishy, but I'm good with this. It has to be a little bit of a self-reflection to say, okay, um, we are part of this, we're in it. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's ask ourselves these questions. So how much have I benefited from my work being hyped? I have. I have to admit that. How much gain has my entire field had? from sort of making itself seem on a higher tier than the field next door. Are we comfortable with that? How do we actually maybe allow for still doing those sort of things while at the same time, again, it's going to sound kind of squishy too, not trying to do it at the expense of others, be it at the expense of other departments within the university or be it at the expense of colleagues, let's say at other universities that can't promote their work, which might be great work, as efficiently as my prestigious university can. Those discussions to me are the ones that need to start and it needs to be very grassroots. So when I go to national meetings, and then I can pose it to you when you do. I see that the national meetings have added a lot of things that I would say are peripheral to science with that I understood it, but all the ones actually do relate more to the hype. So now you can go to sessions on, and this is exactly how they are phrased, how to pitch your science, how to give media interviews. You can get headshots, right, for your portfolio. 
there's all sorts of time now for this. But when you look, there's very little time for the community to say, hey, can we have a session here just to think about how we are doing our science, how we think our science is progressing? And within the education side, I think it's been lost. And you mentioned that article about the scientific method. It's almost now kind of everybody just says, well, everybody knows that, right? That's not a problem. So the need to talk about ethics in research has just kind of gotten thrown out the window other than, you know, you get these kind of tutorials on the website and they tell you not to plagiarize. Okay, well, we all know that. But I don't know. You're, you're the social scientist. You know more about this than I do. There's a lot more to ethics than that. There's a lot more to it than that. And, and unfortunately, little webinars and, and PowerPoint presentations that you go tick, 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 and get to the quiz because any idiot knows what the answers to the questions are. They aren't doing anything. We have to have conversations about these kinds of things. And there is, I think, this fundamental question that you're, I think, alluding to, that there is a, a question about the right way, the ethical way to not just do my science, but to do science, to do what higher education is about, whether it's humanities, social sciences, sciences. And we are not having the conversation. No. And that to me is where it needs to start. So it's kind of the self-reflection. Do we all want to have that conversation? And then it's also, do we value what I would call from the science side, community science versus individual? Now, to me, looking at the history of science, it's always been a blend of the two, right? Um, there's always working with the community and individual self-interest. And different scientists have different levels of ego, different motivations for self-interest. It's, it's always been there, right? And I think you can balance wanting humanity to have the right answer with, you know, just being a human being. I might like to be the person who has the right answer, right? So where do you find the balance between those two? To me, the hype and the business model has kind of pushed the balance in an unhealthy way toward that individual side where you're competing with people. And every scientist I know knows it used to be one or two scientists, right, who would reject all papers that didn't cite them, who would actually, you know, even say you can't cite somebody who disagrees with me. Editors became that way, too. There seems to have been quite a rise in that. And I don't think it's ill intent necessarily. To me, the system allows for a tragedy of the commons type scenario, right? Where there's limited resources, everybody's fighting for it, and then the whole system collapses. So if I see junior colleagues and I talk to them and postdocs saying, look, you know, Adrian, I know this isn't the way to go, but if I don't promote my stuff, if I don't actually make it seem like this is a certain result that gets media exposure, it's not that I'm not going to get ahead. It's I'm going to fall behind. And it becomes this red queen dilemma, right? Everybody's doing it. So if I don't do it and then that's going to push the system, you know, it's a harsh word to use to a change, let's say, if not a collapse. And it will survive. It will survive. It will just be very different. It will be far more on the competitive side of things. And I just don't think that's actually going to help with the way academics, science, arts fit into society as a whole and the deterioration of trust amongst scientists, um, amongst you know any academics relates to these issues that we're talking about. 
I agree. I think it, it's also, unfortunately, it, it's moving. It has moved down into, you know, high school and sort of thing. One of the things you see when, you know, undergraduates come up, they're very, very, very focused on grades, on, you know, they want classes where you have, you know, 25 different little assignments so they can see exactly how they're doing. And there's very little focus on what am I learning? What, what am I getting out of this? Some students, of course, are really motivated by that. I tried an experiment this term. Uh, I teach a class on religion and family in Japan, and I didn't grade anything. Uh, they just had two um, take-home essay exams and a couple other things they had to do. And I gave them absolutely no grades. When I, when the first day of class, when I told them this was going to have, you could just see the looks on their face, like, well, how am I going to know? How am I doing? You know, oh my God. And what I did instead was I gave them extensive comments and then we had conferences and it's only works in a small class. You got 300 students. That's not going to work. But, um, and we talked about the papers and then we, because we have to give grades of some sort, we, we had a discussion about, well, how do you think you did? And, and, uh, they had to do a little self-evaluations, um, and it was really interesting. At the end of the term, I asked all of them. We had a kind of our last class. We talked about how it went. And a few of them said, yeah, I was kind of nervous about this at the beginning because, you know, I didn't know how I would, would you know, be able to get anywhere. And, but all of them basically said, but in the end, I was able to focus on writing my essays instead of worrying about my grade. And my writing got better. And, you know, and I learned things. And... The interesting thing is the class had absolutely no mandatory attendance requirement. There were no deadlines on anything except for the two major things because they had to get done. Um, and students could basically engage as they wished. I looked at the end of the term, 95% attendance. It was just like, it was an eye opener to me because I removed the metrics. I removed the pressure and all of the students said, I didn't feel stress about your class, and yet I was learning all sorts of stuff. And the other thing that was really interesting is it removed all the pressure off of me. It was like liberating. I can read this paper. I can mark it up mercilessly and not have to worry about how do I translate that into a grade. Oh, wow. I had lots and lots of red ink. Yeah, that's a D. And I had to think about that. I could just help them learn to write better and think better. And... Um, I, I probably will never teach another small class again that has normal grading because it worked. And uh, I was really struck at how different things were in the class. That's great to hear. And to me, that's just a beautiful example of kind of a grassroots way of going in and saying, look, you, we think we have to do it this way because it's been given from on high. But we don't, right? So let's try it another way. It works out. More things like that, I think, really are what's needed to get things back to where they were. And to me, it seems like we need to reset a little bit, right? It's just a bit of a reset. And I think we can. And I think human beings have that capacity. It's just a matter of a little time to think about it, to see it done a new way. And, you know, your grade example is a beautiful one where now I worry that it's come into the higher level, right? Where the grades now are papers published, things like that. Or for me, right, breakthrough results, everything has to be a breakthrough. But the history of science will tell you that's not the way it 
goes, right? Everybody can't have a breakthrough. So now you have the pressure not only to do your work in a rigorous way, check things out, but it also has to be somehow significant breakthrough. The rise of these words that I've just never heard applied to science before, transformative, breakthrough, bleeding edge, right? All these things that are business level words is also very telling. And words to me are important. Um, words have meaning. And I think they do kind of reflect a change in thinking. So trying to break out of those habits, the way you're doing it from the class side, I think is just really the, you know, that's, that's the case example. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's one way we, we can, particularly those of us who have tenure can do this. We, we can start challenging the system by trying to find different ways to approach what we're generating in terms of knowledge in the classroom and, and in research, you know, it's just the, um, the, the same thing happens, I think, in the humanities and social sciences, uh, where you've got like in anthropology, um, it used to be that you'd get a lot of good ethnographies that were just wonderfully detailed descriptions of a particular place and lifestyle and everything. There wouldn't be all that much theory about it. But they were really useful because you have you have a lot of data that comes out of that. You know a lot about this culture. Now everybody's got to have a theory. And you got to have that theory when you're in graduate school, because if you don't have a theory, your dissertation isn't going to be a good dissertation. And so what now you're seeing is a lot of writing that, first of all, is inaccessible to undergraduates who haven't read enough to be able to make sense out of it. And also isn't necessarily adding all that much to our understanding of the world. It's a, it's a lot of kind of, again, sort of, sometimes it turns into a lot of sort of self-absorbed wheel spinning about things. And, but that leads to, you know, if you, if you have really good theory out there, well, then people will notice you, you get noticed and, and, and then you get sites and all that kind of thing. And that doubt, that sort of devalues that other side of doing good science and doing good scholarship, which is simply understanding things better, describing things better, getting a better sense of them. Right. And relative to, you know, the title of your podcast, um, some level of humility as well. So, you know, you need a theory. I've noticed something as well that you need kind of a firm conclusion, right? And this rage to conclude, um, I forget who said that. Somebody said it um, smarter than me has kind of permeated into places it shouldn't be, where you need the one singular conclusion. That's the firm one, right? That gets you noticed. Discussions about uncertainty or multiple hypotheses, those have actually kind of taken a second seat where they are the foundations of science. So this need to, you know, have a bow at the end and I mentioned the meetings that I go to where I see, you know, how to talk to media. There's also now this storytelling in science. Now, getting scientists to communicate the results clearly, I'm all for that. Having narrative structure in a paper, that's great, too. If you want to call that story, that's fine. I understand that. I don't dislike that word necessarily. But oftentimes it gets twisted into a story has one clean ending. But research is not about one clean ending, right? It just doesn't work that way. So working scientists realize, right, that papers that aren't on that story with that one clean ending tend not to make it into the prestigious journals, tend not to get picked up. There's no place for them. 
on the optimistic side, I am seeing some changes where people are starting kind of grassroots little e-journals, which actually just says, right, results that went wrong or things with no conclusion. Here's what I'm doing. I'm going to try to save you some time. When I teach intro science to students, they get tired of me saying this because I say it so often, knowing what the answer is not is knowledge. And I've always firmly believed that. And that is something I don't think we want to abandon. So this phrasing, oh, you can't have a negative result is a very weighted word. And oftentimes I'll see junior colleagues not go on into some, let's say, risky science path because like, oh, it might be negative and I get nothing out of it. Whereas that actually should be a positive. No, you get a lot out of it, right? Um, most answers are wrong. History tends to write about the right answers, fine, but a lot of them aren't that way. That's actually a humility aspect too. And I think that can be deteriorated very slowly without people noticing it, where you have to actually be correct. That little excerpt I sent you, I'm glad you liked it, that that's the goal. And it kind of slowly, we're all human. Like I say, we're all human. Scientists can do as stupid things. You start to fool yourself. And you start to forget that you're losing a little bit of that humility side of things. Yeah, I think also there's a structural thing that's changed that I think has really had an effect on this. Um, when I first, you know, when I came through and, and, you know, started graduate school in the 80s and then, you know, did my PhD in the 90s, many, many journals were still run by departments. They are now almost all run by large corporations for a profit. That changes the entire goal of what, what publishing is about. It, it was when they were run by departments, it was really about getting information out there. And so you could publish a paper that didn't have a really nice, strong conclusion because you looked at it and went, well, this contributes, it's valuable. But when it's about sales, well, <laughs> and nobody's going to buy that. So, you know, maybe we don't want to publish that. That becomes a real, I think, uh, contributor to this overall issue. Oh, oh, 100%. And I'm sure you know this well, that other other groups have written about this, and I'm seeing it more and more, that there's a reproducibility crisis kind of across the fields. And you can say, why is that? Is it that these scientists are just being stupid and things like that? No, I think the system is actually kind of pushing it a little bit. And funding agencies, right, prefer to have transformative results. It's very hard to get a grant funded if you're going to actually reproduce something somebody else did, because that's old news. And that old news kind of fits into the advertising model. You know, you don't advertise that or, you know, the retraction appears on page seven. The first claim appears on page one. So this reproducibility crisis, this deterioration, I think you know, the things we've been discussing, that's what's driving it. And it drives it actually kind of slowly, you know, individual by individual. So it becomes this death by small cuts where any one action seems, ah, that's not a big deal. But progressively, it kind of builds up and you get kind of this slow moving train wreck that might actually cause a, a structural change. So we're, we're approaching an hour. Let me ask you a question that kind of curious how you might, how would you define the term intellectual humility and and how do we how do we incorporate that into our our lives as as scholars well that's that's a good question so i'm going to actually make it a little bit personal if you don't mind and just come no, back full circle to where we started so yeah. when my family came to the country from croatia um i came with 
a certain culture. In Croatian culture, parents will say the goal is just to put my child on his or her feet. That's it. Mm-hmm. So they're self-sufficient. What they do doesn't matter, right? So you can be the surgeon who saves somebody's life. You can be the taxi driver who gets somebody home safe when they've had a little bit too much to drink. And we're going to value both the same mm-hmm. as long as you're happy in doing it. To me, from my family, that's always been the sign of humility, where you just value what everybody is doing. You never set yourself higher for, so. oh, hey, I'm an academic professor. You know, if I say that in my fan, they laugh me out of the house, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's just a joke. Now, all right, maybe there's an exception if you're a football player, soccer, but... So that, that's, that's always been kind of the, the way to see it. And it's, it's, it's a hard thing to maintain, particularly when you're in the throes of research. Of course, you love your own work, but you have to sort of think back to what some of the scientists who, me speaking honestly, as humbly as I can, did great things had to say. Don't fall in love since you talk about with your theory, with your single theory, work ways to show your ideas wrong, all those sort of basic things, but they've sort of been lost in the education side. We're about humility at the end of the day, right? That you actually just sort of say, I'm sort of helping this along. I don't value myself more than others. The things that work against that are the pressures, right? To actually promote your work as more significant, less significant. And that's kind of the best way I can phrase it from how I've seen it, that that's, that's intellectual humility and it's kind of humility across the board. And one can say it's maybe respect for other people doing other things. So we've been talking about kind of the university side and the downsides of that. And you can tell me if you see this, I, I see that kind of lack of humility playing out where certain people in one profession devalue people in another one. So I'm in the physical sciences, and you might know this well, right? A lot of physical, so we'll poo-poo social science, or the reverse. And you say, that's clearly a lack of humility. And sometimes, you know, it's a via negativa. It's easier to spot what's not something than what is. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, you see it everywhere. I, you know... In anthropology for years, there were, you know, arguments about whether we're, you know, primarily cultural or primarily biological. And then those, I mean, some of those got so heated that departments split over it when it went into receivership. And it's like, what a ridiculous thing, because that's not really an either or thing anyway. But it's also saying my way of looking at things is the only right way to look at things. And that's not a very humble way to do things. And but it's also not a very scholarly way to do things because as scholars, that, that's kind of the, the root is that we, we sort of embrace the idea that everything is uncertain and all we're really trying to do is see if we can find some edges that make a little piece of it a little more certain than it was before we got to where we got. But all that does is open up more uncertainties. And unfortunately, I think what's really happened is we've been talking about is that, that the I think it's a combination of things. I think it's it's the structures and, and the business model and then the egos of people um, drive this necessity to be certain about things, to have answers about things. But that's just not what our job is. And, and 
No, I, I agree. And I'm probably going to misquote Richard Feynman, but I it was something akin to what's not shrouded in uncertainty can never be truth um, at the end of the day. And yeah, we're trying to narrow that down. I think the other aspect from the humility is when you say you want to value what everybody is doing, yourself included. So if I take it humbly and say, okay, what I'm doing is incremental. And that, now that word's become kind of nasty, right? It's seen as all your science is just incremental. But the history of science itself has been that way. People pushing things forward. Occasionally there's the breakthrough. But to actually call something incremental, and I've heard it phrased this way, it's the another brick in the wall syndrome, right? Where you say, okay, your work's not good because it's just another brick building up the wall. But that's how the structure is built, right? So the lack of value on those sort of things, which to me were always just kind of the classic way knowledge progressed, is that deterioration of the humility side. And it's actually working against what I would say history has shown us does work. Yeah. Sometimes you hear the, the phrase, you know, the, the journeyman scientist or something like that, implying that being a journeyman is somehow not a good thing. But that's actually where most of it gets done. That's where most of our knowledge, you know, really does move forward. But it just moves in little little steps. That's all. Yep. Yeah. No, that's part and parcel of the humility. Anytime you're willing to downtrod somebody else in that way, that's where you need to take a step back and go, wait a minute. Um, I, I need to be very careful about this. And we all, we're all humans. We can all fall into those traps. Of course we do, right? Thinking bad thoughts doesn't make you a bad person, but how one acts on those. And this is, you know, when we started thinking about this, we just saw people acting on things that I think if they took a minute, maybe more than a minute or had some community discussions about it would say this maybe isn't the best path for the long-term health of the community effort yes. I'm involved in. Yeah. Yeah. And really for the long-term health of, of the scholarly endeavor as a whole. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Well, Adrian, I, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed this and, and I, anything else you'd like to add? No, I, I would just say I enjoyed it too, John, right? I mean, both of us didn't come in with anything specific. I like to think both of us think this is an interesting issue to discuss. And we don't exactly know what the questions are, but you're not actually going to get there unless you start talking about them. And that's, that's part of the kind of grassroots thing. And if you see more of it, that would be a great thing. So I really enjoyed it in that sense as well. I see it coming in as an experiment. And, you know, as a science teacher, I tell students, hey, you experiment all the time. You just don't realize it That's right? Right. with, yeah. you know, rock and roll and all the things that, you know, you're experimenting with everything. So if you can start to see it that way. So to me, this was a beautiful little experiment. Right. Um, did it lead to a firm conclusion? No, we're not going to write a paper about it, but <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it's a start to something nice. And I really enjoyed it as well. I, I have to say thank you very much for having me. Great. Well, thank you. And um, I will wrap it up for this episode of How to Be Wrong.